Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Thank you for being here, especially right at the start. Let's pray before we get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that is a light unto our path. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our light unto salvation. God, I pray that you would help me to be able to explain this new material today, summarizing what your Bible teaches, and help us, Lord, to be in awe of the gospel, of what you actually do in salvation, and also aware of our responsibility. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we are continuing in the Fundamentals of the Faith course, and remember what this is all about. This is about laying a biblical, or laying a foundation of biblical theology and practice. This is to reinforce our convictions. This is to fill in gaps in our understanding, and it is to bring us to greater unity as a church. We began last week looking at the topic of salvation. What is the Bible's teaching regarding how a sinner is saved from sin and from God's wrath? As I mentioned last week, we can divide the Bible's teaching on salvation into two main categories, what God does in salvation and what man does in salvation. And last week, we looked at God's role in salvation. And what is it that God does in salvation? Everything, everything. We looked at this in depth, but from graciously choosing before the foundation of the world to providing atonement through his son to regenerating to bringing the gospel to giving faith and repentance to sanctifying to glorifying God does it all. Man is not able to do any part of this because he is spiritually dead. He is reliant on God and God's power. Man can do nothing good on his own. God must do it all logically and the Bible says in fact that he does do it all for his own glory. But this doesn't make the saved person just a passive absorber of all that God does. Within the sovereign working of God, man does respond to God's work. A saved person actually does something in response. To say that another way, the saved sinner has a role in his own salvation. What is that role? What does he do? That's what we want to talk about today. So this is salvation part two. And to get you thinking more about man's part in salvation, let me pose to you a multiple choice question. Don't answer this out loud. Just think about it. Put together an answer in your own heads. According to the Bible, which of the following marks the exact point of salvation for a person? You can look at that point and say, Psh, that's when salvation took place. Is it A, baptism before witnesses? Is it B, public confession of Jesus as Lord? Is it C, a spoken prayer of God asking for salvation? D, is it silent prayer to God asking for salvation? Or is it E, none of the above? Let's take a second to think about it. Well, what is the correct answer? While answers A to D are closely associated with genuine salvation and may even appear moments after salvation occurs, the correct answer is E, none of the above. Because what is it? What is it that marks the exact point of salvation for a person? Okay, that is correct, but I want to be a little bit more specific. You say the Spirit opens their minds and hearts to respond to the Word of God, but looking from man's side, what, what happens or what does a man do that marks the point of salvation? Yeah, Dwayne. Okay, now repentance and faith, Dwayne says, where does that take place? 
Is that something you say out loud? Is that where repentance and faith takes place? It's in the heart. It's in the heart. This is the mysterious beauty of the gospel, and a frustrating fact for any person looking to work his way for salvation. There is nothing you can do to bring about salvation, not even praying a prayer, whether spoken out loud or silently. And if you consider this list of possibilities for what is the exact moment of salvation, can people do A through D and not actually be saved? Absolutely. And we probably know people who have done this. Maybe we ourselves did that in the past. You were baptized, but you didn't really know the Lord, or you spoke a prayer or said a prayer in your heart, but you didn't really know the Lord. And this is because what actually saves a person is a change of heart. An acquiescence to the truth of the gospel so that a person in his heart lets go of his sin and false means of salvation and entrusts himself wholly to Jesus. Now often this change of heart is expressed immediately in a prayer to God expressing sorrow over sin and trust in Jesus as the only Lord and Savior. And so if you look back to your own experience, you say, oh, I thought I was saved when I, I prayed a particular prayer. That probably, that prayer was the immediate result of the salvation. It wasn't the prayer, though, that saved you. It was the faith. It was the true belief that saved you. Or to be more accurate, it was Jesus who saved you. And you became connected to him. You received the salvation from him when you had a new, real faith in your heart. Believing in Jesus. Now, we don't have to just look experientially to see this truth. There is a very interesting Bible passage that corroborates what I'm saying. So if you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 48. Uh, this is page 1100, actually 1101 if you're using the Pew Bible. Context of this passage is that the Apostle Peter is visiting a man named Cornelius, a Roman centurion and God-fearer. Now, by God-fearer, I mean someone who believes in the God of the Jews, but is himself not a Jew. And he's not yet heard the gospel of Jesus. So he believes in Yahweh, but he's a Gentile. Now, in the earlier part of Acts 10, we hear about Peter being supernaturally summoned to go speak to Cornelius. And Peter actually goes to Cornelius' house, which was a big deal, because Jews considered entering the house of a Gentile as ceremonially defiling. But... Because of the revelation given to Peter, he goes. And Cornelius, meanwhile, brings together his relatives and closest friends to hear whatever message God is going to give Peter to say. Well, in Acts 10.34, we hear Peter begin to speak to Cornelius and the gathered relatives and friends, all these Gentiles. And listen to what Peter says, or rather follow along with what the text says Peter says. Acts 10.34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all, or he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, 
but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Let's pause there for a second. We could say much about what Peter just said, but let's just summarize what is the message that Peter is explaining here. Okay, Jesus is the sovereign one, but we have a short term for the message that Peter is essentially explaining. Danny, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news about Jesus. You'll notice about Jesus' life, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, and the fact that he is the judge of the, he's going to judge the living and the dead. And he is also the one God raised up so that whoever believes in him will have forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel. Cornelius is looking for whatever message Peter has from God. Well, the message that God has for Peter to say is the gospel. Now, notice carefully what happens next in the text. Verse 44 and following. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay on for a few days. Now the visible falling of the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles here is significant. Because what does that indicate? Okay, yes, so now we have the Holy Spirit on the Jews and Gentiles, but what's so significant about that, uh, Dwayne? That's right, this is, this is an indicator of salvation, of being accepted, being brought in by God, and being given all the blessings that are in Jesus. There's much more in the New Testament about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and its indwelling of a person, but when the church first started, God showed the visible, or God showed the indwelling of the Spirit by a miraculous visible coming upon a person where they even began to speak in languages that they didn't know before. These were human languages, but this happened for the Jews in the day of Pentecost, happened for the Gentiles right here. This is God giving his Holy Spirit in a very visible way as a seal and proof of the salvation of these individuals. That itself is very significant because, according to the text, when did the Holy Spirit fall on these Gentile believers? Was it after they were baptized? No, they get baptized after the Holy Spirit comes on upon them. Was it after they made a public confession of Jesus as Lord? No, they hadn't said anything yet. Was it after they prayed to God, either out loud or privately? Well, we don't know what's going on privately, but they're busy doing something, so it's not likely that they're praying something in their hearts because what are they doing? according to verse 44, when the Holy Spirit falls upon them. They're listening because Peter's still speaking. Verse 44, it says, while Peter was still speaking these words. He's not even done his gospel presentation. But notice in verse 43, Peter had just declared that those who believe in Jesus would would receive forgiveness of sins. 
So what is it that happened between verse 43 and the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles? They believed. They believed. That was it. They just had a change of heart in that moment where they heard Peter explain enough of the gospel, and they say, or they're not even saying, uh, it's not even being necessarily consciously articulated in a full way in their hearts, but they, they believe, and immediately the Holy Spirit comes upon them. These Gentiles have put their trust in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Now this is a pretty clear demonstration of how salvation actually works from a human perspective. Now, some other things that are associated with salvation, even though this is an internal change, some other things that are associated with salvation in an external way, they manifest pretty quickly. They do begin miraculously praising God in these tongues. They get baptized immediately. But it wasn't the baptism, it wasn't the praising that saved them. It was the belief in the heart. So this is the point I want you to see from this passage. It's simply faith in Christ that results in salvation, and that's a change that takes place in the heart. Now today we want to look more closely at faith and its counterpart, repentance. These together make up what is theologically called conversion, and that's a biblical term. You do see it in different places. What is conversion? It is the turning of heart that brings salvation. And asking what man's part in salvation really is, it's this. It's conversion. It's repentance and faith. Of course, that's a gift from God. We've already talked about that. But looking at man's side, he must repent and believe to be saved. Now, as I said in the little prelude to our lesson today, we're going to be using the workbooks for part of this lesson. So if you've done the homework already, you'll be well prepared. We're going to go over some of the questions here. And we're going to look at these two concepts in more detail Faith and repentance, or repentance and faith. And before I go on, though, let me ask you another question. Are repentance and faith actually two separate actions, or are they really just two ways of talking about the same idea of conversion? That's right. They're actually just two ways of looking at the same thing, and this is an important realization. Because otherwise you'll be confused about how the Bible talks about what humans must do to be saved. Because otherwise, it seems like the Bible's inconsistent. Sometimes the Bible says that only repentance is required for salvation. For example, Acts 17.30. Acts 17.30. Paul's preaching, and he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent. Wait, what about faith? No, he says repent. That's Acts 17.30. So sometimes only repentance is mentioned. Other times the Bible says that only faith is required. Only belief is required. And you know this from one of the most famous statements in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, not repents and believes, believes in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. Oh, so I guess faith is the only thing that we need. Well, sometimes the Bible says that both repentance and faith are required. Fewer instances of this, but one notable one, at least, in Mark 1, 14 to 15. Mark 1, 14 to 15, this is actually Jesus preaching. It says, you know, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, message of salvation, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Why isn't the Bible consistent on this? 
Well, that's because these are really two sides of the same coin. There's not really an inconsistency here. This is just using one term or the other to emphasize a different aspect of saving conversion. Each one of these terms emphasizes a different aspect of what a man does to be saved. It is accurate for you to say we are saved by faith alone. You don't have to have somebody come by and say, no, you forgot repentance. No, repentance is included in the idea of saving faith. And sometimes you have to bring that out more because people have forgotten that that's actually part of saving faith. These days, it is important that we clarify what repentance really is. But to be clear, the Bible does teach that it is faith alone, faith and repentance, it is faith alone in Christ alone that saves. There's nothing else that can save and nothing else is necessary to be added to faith to save. Baptism is not necessary. The Lord's table is not necessary. Verbal confession is not necessary. Prayer is not necessary. Good works are not necessary to be saved. God has ordained that only simple change of heart, simple belief in one's heart that connects one to Jesus Christ immediately results in justification, sanctification, adoption, and glorification. Some of that in part and some of it is received in full. The rest is still to come. But we've been through this a little bit in our last lesson. God accounts us righteous. He accepts us fully simply on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ. This fits the pattern of the father of faith, Abraham, Genesis 15:6. Genesis 15:6, then Abraham believed in the Lord that is Yahweh, and he, God, reckoned it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. All he did was believe, and God says, "You are considered righteous. I account you as righteous." And of course, the same truth is beautifully expressed in many verses of the New Testament, including one that we know and love, Ephesians 2:8-9. Ephesians 2:8-9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's never forget that this is why the gospel is such good news. And why it's so foreign to all self-righteous religious systems of the world. God says you simply must believe in Jesus and you will be saved. That's it? Just believe? That's so generous. That's so simple and easy. Well, in a sense, yes, it is simple and easy. But in another sense, faith is extremely hard and costly. Many people think they have exercised faith in Jesus unto salvation when they have not really. They do not understand faith. Or they do not understand the repentance that is part of true faith, according to the Bible. So that's why we want to look at these terms more. And let's do that starting with repentance. If you haven't already, open your workbooks to page 49 and look under point two, conversion, and even section A, conviction of sin. Whenever I ask someone at the mall if they've ever heard the term repent or repentance before, I sometimes get the answer yes. But when I follow up and ask them, what does it mean to repent? I usually get, oh, it's feeling bad about your sin, right? Well, is feeling bad about your sin the same as biblical repentance? No, though it is connected. It's part of it, but that itself is not repentance. What is repentance? Well, if you have your workbook and you're an astute observer, you will notice 
We have a definition provided for us at the bottom of page 49. Bottom of page 49, it says, Repentance means turning away from sin and turning to God. That's a good definition. Repentance means turning away from sin and turning to God. In the one coin of conversion, the repentance side emphasizes what you're turning away from. Faith emphasizes what you're turning toward in Christ. Repentance emphasizes what you're turning away from. So repentance means turning away from sin, from all that dishonors God, so that you may go to God himself. And it's a full turning. It's the turning of the entire self, your entire inner man, to God. We could break this down specifically. You turn in your understanding. You turn in your emotions. You turn in your will. Everything that makes, you, makes up you and the inner man. This ultimately results in a turning of behavior, how you live. But the repentance itself is that inward turning, the turning in your understanding, emotions, and will. I've sometimes heard biblical repentance defined this way. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. That, too, is a good definition of repentance because it's actually based off of one of the biblical terms for repentance. In New Testament Greek, we have metanoeo, or the noun form metanoia, which literally means to change your mind or a change of mind. That is what repentance is. It's a change of mind about sin, about yourself, about God. But the change never stays in the mind. If there's been a true change of mind or heart, those are synonymous terms in the Bible, it always results in a changed life. So let's look at this with some biblical passages. True repentance, first of all, includes a change of understanding, a turning in the understanding. And this is important because most people think that they are good people not in danger of God's wrath. Or some people pretend to themselves that there is no God, and therefore there is no judgment. I don't have anything to be worried about. So for anyone to be saved, there must be a massive turning, a massive change in understanding. And how does that happen? Well, look at the first question in your workbooks. A, number one. What has God given people to reveal their sinfulness? And you're given Romans 3.20 as a little anchor passage to answer that. But what is the answer? What has God given people to reveal their sinfulness? The law. What's the law? The commandments, where? So, certainly in the Old Testament, but we could put, we could consider the Bible as a whole. The commandments of God, especially expressed in the Old Testament, it, uh, what does actually three, Romans 3.20 say? Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, Romans 2 we won't look at this specifically. Romans 2 says that even people who don't have God's Bible, even don't have a written version of God's law, they still have God's law testifying against them. How so? That's right. It's, it's already written in their hearts. It's imprinted in their hearts. Now it often gets twisted. It gets fuzzy. But it's already there in their consciences and in their hearts, and it's alternatively excusing or accusing or excusing, or accusing them. But either way, God has put his law, both in our hearts and especially in his word, to show us our sin. How does this happen? Well, in repentance, ultimately, if this results in repentance, God uses his word to show us who he really is. 
what his standard really is to be considered acceptable to him, to be righteous before him, and what is the penalty for those who don't meet that standard. What does God's law reveal that God is, who God is? He is the holy creator and lawgiver who rightfully deserves all worship and obedience. His standard for his creation is to be holy just like he is, perfectly, all the time. Jesus even says this in Matthew 5, 48, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Those who do not meet this standard of perfection, according to the law, will suffer eternal death under the holy wrath of God for rebelliously, willfully refusing to give to God what is his just due. And that's bad news. Because how many of us have met God's standard? None. We know this. So what is our just sentence from a holy God? It's death. It's eternal condemnation. It's hell. Which is why Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody's met the standard. Romans 6.23a adds, For the wages of sin is death. This is what you earn. This is your just recompense. All of us stand condemned. Could additional good works make up for our imperfections? No, why not? Because even those works fall short. And also, if you're already imperfect, are you ever going to become perfect again? No matter what you do. James 2.10, whoever breaks the whole or whoever breaks one aspect of the law will be considered guilty of breaking the whole law before God. And even our good works are themselves corrupt, according to 60, Isaiah 64.6. Now this is new information for most people. They don't know this. So for someone to be saved then, and more specifically for our purposes, for someone to repent, there must be a change in their understanding. There must be a change in their understanding so that person ends up confessing in his heart, saying the same thing as God does about himself and about his sin. God, now I see from your law, now I see from your word, you are a holy God, and I am guilty before you. I am justly condemned to eternal wrath, to hell fire, unless you provide a merciful intervention. Another way of describing this realization of guilt is conviction of sin. And we see an example of this kind of conviction even as part of true repentance in Acts 2, 36 to 37. That's part of the next question in your workbook. Question A2, when the people realized their mistake that they made in crucifying Christ, how did they feel in their hearts? According to that verse, it says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? They had the message proclaimed to them, the word of God, and that message pointed out their sin and how they are under the condemnation of God. And they realized it. There was a turning in their understanding and they were pierced. And they said, we need rescue. So true repentance must include a change in understanding where you say, I am not good before God. I am guilty. But there's not merely a change in understanding. The repentance is not merely intellectual. If someone truly understands the magnitude of his sin before God, there will also be a change in his emotions. There will be the introduction of a new godly sorrow, a hatred of sin, and a zeal to be free from guilt. Look at question 1b in your workbooks under repentance from sin. This refers to the passage of the 
story about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. And the question is, why did the tax collector cry out to God in the temple? I'll read that verse to you in case you don't have it in front of you. Actually, why don't you turn there? Because there's some things I want you to see. Luke 18, 13. Luke 18, 13. This is page 1046 in the Pew Bible. The question is, why did the tax collector cry out to God in the temple? And let's see what the verse says. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So why did the tax collector cry out to God? That's right. It's just like what we were talking about. There's been a change in his understanding. He's convicted of sin, but he's not indifferent to that. He's like, oh, I guess that's, a, that's reality I need to acknowledge. He's broken over it. He's now crying out to God. He's emotionally affected. And he's asking for mercy. And this is quite a contrast in this story that Jesus tells. Because you have the Pharisee right before this who's basically congratulating himself when he prays to God. He says, I'm so righteous. Thank you, God, that I'm so righteous. He doesn't realize his own sin. He doesn't have any godly sorrow or zeal to be made right with God. But then you have this tax collector. And you know anything about tax collectors. They're hated by most Jews, notorious in their societies. But what about his behavior indicates that he understands the magnitude of his own sin, besides just crying out to God? He's beating his breast, and you say, what's that about? Well, that's not something really we do anymore, but that was a sign of sorrow and contrition in that society. When you see Jesus crucified and some people realize that he's dead, it says that Many of them beat their breasts because they just were so sorrowful over what had occurred. So you see him doing that. What else indicates that he understands his sin? He wouldn't even look to heaven. Yeah, what else? Yeah, he cried out. We've mentioned that. Okay, yeah, he he does seem to be more or less alone. Notice it says that he stood some distance away. So he only goes so far into the temple, into the temple complex, apparently because he doesn't feel worthy to go any closer. The Pharisee just strides right up there. But the tax collector stands some distance away. He won't look to heaven. He's beating his breast. He's asking God for mercy. But then also notice what he calls himself. The sinner. That is something significant. Here's another instance where we have a special use of the Greek definite article. The the before the word sinner. Tax collector doesn't use this term to distinguish himself from the Pharisee. He doesn't know anything about the Pharisee and the Pharisee's sin. Rather, this is the definite article used to express the sense of par excellence. The greatest or the most prominent of a particular category. You saw this recently if you were part of um, listening to my sermons on John 3. John 3.10, Jesus identifies Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel. You're the greatest. You're the most prominent. You're the most illustrious teacher of Israel. And you still don't understand? That's definite article with the par excellence sense. Same idea here. This tax collector prays to God, and he identifies himself as the sinner. He says, God, I am the worst. I haven't studied other people's sins, but I've come to see my own, and all I can say is that I must be the worst. Yet please have mercy on me. 
And this is an attitude of someone who's truly turned in his understanding of repentance, and it's resulted in a turning in his emotions. He now has a godly sorrow. And you know what's profound? Look at the next verse. What does Luke 18, 14 say? This one who identify himself as the worst sinner goes away justified. The one who saw his sin and sorrowed over it, the one who cried out for the Lord for his mercy, he was the one who was considered acceptable to God, righteous before God. Here again is that mysterious gospel logic. You cry out in repentance to God as the worst sinner, God accepts you. You pretend you're righteous and you refuse to acknowledge your sin or sorrow over it, or you're condemned forever as a wicked one. Godly sorrow, a change, a turning in your emotions, that's part of true repentance. But is all sorrow over sin godly? Well, let's look at another passage. You see this next in your workbooks, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 to 10. You can turn your Bibles over there. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 10. Here, Paul speaks about how he received word about the Corinthian church and how they repented after Paul confronted them in a letter about sin they had committed as a whole in the congregation. He hears that that they've repented. And in verses 9 to 10 of chapter 7, Paul notes how he knows their repentance is genuine, or one reason that he knows their repentance is genuine, for look what he says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 10. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So what was so encouraging to Paul about the Corinthians? that they expressed sorrow. They had a sorrow. And not just any old sorrow, but a godly sorrow. Now, there is such a thing as a worldly sorrow. It's very different from godly sorrow. Now, look at the two questions under number two in your workbooks. What does godly sorrow over sin produce? Repentance without regret. What And to what does this repentance without regret lead? Salvation. What about worldly sorrow? How does it contrast with godly sorrow? What it leads to is death. What about the sorrow itself? Okay, we'll say more about that in a second. There's a difference in what the sorrow is essentially concerned about. But does a worldly sorrow have repentance? Or at least if it does, it's not a repentance without regret. A momentary repentance, perhaps, but there's regret eventually connected with it. And the outcome is indeed death. Why? Why the difference in these sorrows? Why the difference in their outcomes? Well, it goes back to what Glenda mentioned. There's essential, there is an essential difference over, to, over what the sorrow is really about. One is centered on God... The other is centered on the self. 
Worldly sorrow is really only about the consequences of sin or the loss of sin's enjoyment. It's basically self-centered. It eventually regrets the repentance, and it longs for that sin again. You see this kind of sorrow exhibited many times in the world, especially when someone gets caught in some terrible trespass. But godly sorrow, while acknowledging the pain of sin's temporal consequences, it's ultimately God-centered. It is grieved primarily over what an offense or an injustice sin is to God. What a person's sin has done to God. Can you think of anyone in the Bible who showed ungodly sorrow over sin that really just led to death? Judas is a great example. Saul's another one. These are people who are caught in terrible sins. They express sorrow over the sin, even a certain willingness to change. Maybe not Judas so much. He does throw the money back into the temple. But it didn't result ultimately in repentance and certainly not salvation. Judas commits suicide. Saul kind of does the same thing. Esau, too, though we don't see him reported as ending up in death. We never see him, even though he's sorry about giving up his birthright, we never see him actually return to God. And it's said in the New Testament that he sought for repentance with tears, but he never actually repented. He wanted repentance, or rather, he wanted the results of repentance without the repentance. These are all examples of ungodly sorrow leading to death. But can you think of anybody in the scriptures caught in a sin who then expressed godly sorrow leading to repentance and even salvation? David is probably one of the most clear examples, right? He has this terrible set of sins that he commits with Bathsheba. And really he deserved to die because of it. But God pardons him. There was a certain discipline that God gave to David as a leader of the nation, but even though he committed adultery, murder, blasphemy, deception, God pardoned his sin because David owned up to it and had real godly sorrow over it. Who else? Peter is another good example. I mean, what a contrast between Judas and Peter. Essentially, both betray the Lord Jesus, but Judas won't come back to Jesus in repentance. He kills himself. Peter does, and he's restored by the Lord. And we could look at other examples. So you see that true repentance is a turning both in the understanding and the emotions. If there is a true understanding in, or turning in the understanding, it will also result in a change in the emotions. But there's one more part. It's not enough to realize that you're wrong and feel godly sorrow or feel sorrow over it. No, if those things are true in a biblical sense, those who have truly turned in their understanding and emotions will also turn in their wills. They will commit to change and to embrace God's way to make whatever needs to be made right, right. There is a change in the will. There is a turning in the will. Indeed, if we just stay in the same passage and look at verse 11, notice what it says there. 2 Corinthians 7, 11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Paul's saying here. Well, he's not contradicting what he just said. And he says, actually, you didn't really sin. You're innocent after all. No, that would contradict what he just said. Rather, Paul is pointing out this other part of true repentance. There's an actual forsaking of the evil. 
that was committed and that was sorrowed over. There's a forsaking of the evil in the will to follow God's way. A truly repentant person, he gives up his sin. He gives up his self-righteousness. He gives up the lordship over his own life. I'm going to decide what I do and God doesn't really have a say. No, he gives all that up because of these other things that have taken place in him. He now understands what's really going on about himself and God and his sin, and he's been affected by it, even in his emotions. This is only natural. This is the expected outcome of somebody who really understands sin and has come to hate it, has come to sorrow over it. One memorable and instructive call to repentance in the scriptures is Isaiah 55, 7. So why don't you turn your Bibles over to the Old Testament so we can see this together. Isaiah 55, 7. Really, this is another good example, if you consider the context, of repentance and faith. Because in the earlier part of the passage, you see the positive invitation of God, the positive aspect emphasized. But in Isaiah 55, 7, you see the negative aspect of conversion emphasized, repentance. Look at what it says in Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, that is Yahweh, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I know we're just looking at one verse here, but notice to whom the call is made. Is it made to the righteous or is it made to the wicked? To the wicked, to the unrighteous one. And what is it that the unrighteous man is to forsake, according to this verse? His thoughts and his way, his way and his thoughts. Now, what is meant by the expression, his way? Exactly, his conduct, behavior, the way he lives his life. This is not literally like there's a path he's going on, it's like God says, don't go down that road. No, this is figurative. This is how he lives his life. You are to forsake that way, your speech and behavior, the way you live. Now, that part of man is observable, isn't it? What about the thoughts? Are they observable? They're not. And this is because they are inside a person. They are the inner man. But God says you ought to forsake those too. So in true repentance, where does God require the forsaking of evil? In the heart, the thoughts, but also your life, your behavior, your speech and conduct. There's that change in will to forsake evil in all areas, inside and out. Of course, it begins in the heart, but there's that commitment to forsake it outwardly as well. And this is done for a purpose, so that this wicked person, according to verse 7, may return to Yahweh. And notice what is promised to such a forsaker immediately upon returning to God. Pardon, compassion, abundant pardon, it says. And isn't that a surprise? Immediate pardon? What about penance? What about a bunch of good works first to arouse your compassion, God? Not what the text says. Not necessary. It is merely the change of heart, merely the change of will that says, no longer my way, God, your way. To that, God says, you now have my compassion. You have my full pardon. Here again is the beauty of the gospel. This is why we say salvation is by faith alone, apart from works. It's all about a changed heart, which God does, but we have a role in. We give, our will, we give up our sin. We have a turning of our wills to God. 
So, to summarize, here is the repentance part of conversion. You, you really see it summarized on the screen. It's a turning away from sin and a turning to God. This turning takes place in the inner man. It affects the understanding, the emotions, the will. And it must have all of those to be really true repentance. If you only have one of these or two of these, you may think you're repenting, but you're not really. Someone might acknowledge his sin is wrong, but still not be moved to change. Or someone might will to change, but he doesn't really understand why, and so he doesn't follow through. Any incomplete repentance, any only partial repentance, well, not only will it fail produce, to do, produce lasting change, it will not save. That's not biblical repentance. True, repent, true, true repentance is of the whole man, the whole inner man. It must be a complete change of heart to be real. This is what we've seen. But repentance is just the negative side of the coin. The positive side is faith or belief. Negatively, a person turns from sin. Positively, he turns to God. But what exactly is a person turning to positively in God? Let's now talk about faith. Some people think they have faith in God if they believe intellectually that Jesus really existed or that Jesus really is God or that Jesus really did die for the sins of mankind. But saving faith is much more than this. If you look at the end of section C on page 50, you'll see a good definition of faith provided there. What is faith? Faith means trusting in, clinging to, or embracing Jesus Christ, who is the object of our faith. Faith means trusting, trusting in, clinging to, or embracing Jesus Christ, who is the object of our faith. You see, this is something that we need to understand. When it comes to believing in Jesus, the kind of belief that the Bible is talking about is an entrusting kind of belief. It is a firm conviction in which you take a risk, in a sense, on Jesus. You go all in on him. You give yourself wholly to Jesus. You rely on him alone to save you. And you take him as Lord of your life. You see there's a wheelbarrow on here. I remember hearing a story illustrating the difference between mere intellectual belief and entrusting belief. This is just a parable. I don't believe this really happened. There was once a tightrope walker who claimed he could walk over Niagara Falls on a tightrope while pushing a wheelbarrow. And many gathered to watch the feat. The man, before he did it the first time, he asked someone in the crowd in particular as to whether that person believed the walker could succeed in his task without falling. And the person said, yeah, I think you can do it. Somewhat nervous. The tightrope walker then proceeded to do exactly as he set out to do. He walked the entire distance over Niagara Falls, pushing the wheelbarrow, and he walked back. Of course, the crowd was very impressed by this, clapping, cheering. The walker then found that same man in the crowd and asked him another question. Do you think I can do this again without falling or losing the wheelbarrow? The guy was more enthusiastic. Yeah, I, I believe you can. Well, the walker then did it again. He took the wheelbarrow, went across the tightrope, and went all the way back. And, of course, the crowd is even more impressed, even more pleased. Wow, what a feat. The walker then comes back to that first person that he talked to, and he says, do you think I can do it a third time without losing the wheelbarrow, without falling off? And the man is even more confident. He says, absolutely, I am sure you can do it. And then the walker says to him, well, then get in the wheelbarrow. That's the difference, right? You see, believing in Jesus isn't just watching risk-free from the sidelines while Jesus accomplishes the amazing feat of salvation. 
No, it's getting in Jesus' wheelbarrow. You trust that Jesus really is fully God and fully man, just as he said. That he does fully pay for the sins of those who believe in him. And also fully supplies his own righteousness to make those persons justified and acceptable to God. You believe the message of Jesus. You believe the person of Jesus. You acknowledge him as Lord of your life. You give yourself over to him for his service. You cannot acknowledge Jesus to be who he is and not give yourself to him. There would be a total disconnect there. If he is who he is, then you must give yourself to him. Your heart says to Jesus, you alone are worthy of devotion as the Savior and Lord. I entrust my whole self to you. Do you see how, in a way, this is just saying the same thing that repentance did? It's just a more positive emphasis, but really it's the same. No one who embraces Jesus in such a full way also holds on to sin or self-made efforts to earn God's favor or clings to his own way. That's why repentance and faith are really two ways of talking about the same thing. You must give up all to Jesus to receive Jesus' salvation. Now, what does God promise to all those who have such a faith in Jesus in their hearts? Immediate salvation. All the privileges of a child of God. No works, no rituals, no amount of good deeds required, just genuine faith in the Son of God in the heart. God promises salvation to those who simply believe. And God makes good on that promise. Look at C1 in your notebooks. So turning back the page. Number of questions centered on Romans 10. What promise is given to those who simply call upon the name of the Lord? They will be saved. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just call on him from the heart. No uncertainty with that statement. It's guaranteed. Simply call by faith on the Son and you will be saved. Or to use the bronze serpent analogy mentioned here in the context, and we've even talked about it similarly from John 3, you just look at the serpent and you're healed. And uh, by analogy, you just look to Jesus in faith and you're saved. That's it. So back up a second. Go to Romans 10, verses 8 to 10. Yeah, we can actually turn there now. Romans 10, 8 to 10. Some famous verses here declaring salvation by faith. Give you a little bit of context of these verses. Right before Paul clarifies why the Jews have not come to be saved. As a whole, why haven't the Jews believed? Well, they're still trying to earn salvation through the law, by keeping the law. They're not realizing that the real way of salvation by faith has been staring them in the face the whole time. Indeed, the apostles have brought the message afresh to Israel. So no Jew can say, oh, the truth about salvation is too difficult or too far away to find. Not at all. So Paul says, starting in verse 8, Romans 10, 8. But what does it say? Salvation by faith. What does salvation by faith say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Look at the workbook questions that come after these verses. So this is the next page, 2A. Faith is required for salvation. What must you confess? 
Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's God. He's the Lord of your life. To be, what must you believe? God raised Jesus from the dead. That's an essential aspect of the gospel. And what is the promised result from God? You'll be saved. Now you might be saved or hopefully will be saved. God will consider it and think about it. No, you will be saved. Again, we ask, that's it? Yes, that's it. And isn't that good news? That's why we call it the gospel. Nothing is required to be saved from God's wrath and brought into eternal paradise with Jesus except simple faith in him. How radically wonderful such a message is compared to all the things taught by world religions bent on the false gospel of works. Keep all these rules, do these rituals, and God might let you into his heaven. Nope. Gospel says this is how God chooses to glorify himself. In simple faith, we acknowledge in him that we are helpless without him, need him to do everything. And he essentially responds, that's right. But you know what? I am pleased to glorify myself by saving you in this way. God gets all the glory when salvation is just by faith. Now, looking at Romans 10, 8 to 10, you might ask yourself, hey, Pastor Dave, I thought you said salvation all comes down to faith in the heart. What's this here in Romans 10 about confessing with your mouth in order to be saved? I mean, that sounds like something external and extra. You mean I really need to say out loud, Jesus is Lord to be saved? It says confess with your mouth. Do I really need to do that? What do you think? Good, Glenda. You said, if you're truly saved, you will let everybody know about what God has done for you. And answering the question, do you need to confess through the mouth that Jesus is Lord to be saved? The answer is yes and no. No, it is not required to be saved because by definition, faith is an internal reality. So how could the word of faith, which is Paul's way of summarizing the gospel, how could the word of faith require something beyond mere faith? However, the answer is also yes, because just as Glenda said, any real faith of the heart will result in a readiness to confess Jesus outwardly to the people of the world. That's why those two things can be said together. If you say, oh, I believe Jesus in my heart, but I'm not going to confess him out loud, well, then you betray yourself. You show that your faith is not real. Here we begin to provide one important clarification to the amazing truth we've been meditating on, that salvation is by faith alone, by repentance and faith alone, apart from works, prayers, or rituals. If someone is truly repentant, truly has faith in Jesus, that person will have noticeable changes taking place in his life. He will start praying to God. He will confess his faith publicly. In some measure, he will seek to be baptized. But to speak even more fundamentally, this person will start living righteously. His life will become characterized by increasing holiness. Not perfection, but a fundamentally new direction after Jesus. Why and how is this true? 
What does a changed life have to do with assurance of salvation? Sorry, a little bit of cliffhanger. We have to wait till next time to discuss that. Speaking next time, do remember, hopefully you saw the email, that next Sunday we have our special kingdom worker with us. He'll be speaking during both the Sunday school hour and the main service. But because of where he serves, there will be no live stream during the next Sunday school or during the service. So you'll definitely want to show up in person to the Sunday school class, if at all possible. You'll be encouraged, I'm sure, by hearing what our kingdom worker has to say, and you will be very much an encouragement to him. So next Sunday, we won't come back to this. We'll be hearing our kingdom worker. But the following Sunday, we will resume where we left off, come back to salvation part three, and we'll talk about how salvation changes a person to walk a new way. We're going to talk about sanctification and what that has to do with assurance of salvation. And after that, of course, we'll take a break for the summer months of July and August and pick up the rest of FOF in the fall. A couple minutes left. Questions about what you heard today? Yeah, Mark. The controversy over lordship salvation coming from what I just read in Romans. Which part of Romans? Right, confessing with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Yeah, I'm sure that and many other passages. What the controversy that has existed, it's not as intense today, but still there are those who, in the name of defending salvation by faith alone, push back against the idea that a person's life needs to be changed. And they'll say, you're basically trying to make salvation by works by saying somebody has to live holy. But no, there is a subtle distinction. We're going to clarify it more next time. But if the faith is real, if the repentance is real, according to the scriptures, there must be a change. There must be a forsaking of sin. That's what repentance is, right? We already talked about it. It includes the forsaking of all that dishonors God in the will. If that is not borne out in a person's life, in some measure, well, the Bible would indicate there is ample reason to question that person's salvation. That's not real repentance. That's not real faith. Yes, we do want to guard the encroachment of any sort of work onto salvation, guard salvation by faith, but we cannot at the same time, slip into easy, easy believism, which is, oh, just believe in Jesus, and then it doesn't matter what happens with the rest of your life. Now, you don't really have biblical belief if that's the way you're thinking about it. We'll say more related to those things, but yeah, certainly this has been a relevant topic in American evangelicalism over the last decades. Another question? Yeah, Sage. Yeah, so what we, great question, Sage, talking about very commonly in Christianity, people will talk about praying a salvation prayer or even what's preventing you from praying a prayer to God for salvation right now. What do we say to that? Well, what we've talked about today certainly has implications because we know that no prayer will save. And if you 
walk someone through a salvation prayer or you tell someone all he has to do is pray, there's a great danger that you or that person may now have a false assurance of salvation because they prayed a prayer. Does that mean that you should discourage them from praying? Or that if they want to pray after you've given the gospel to them, you should say, no. No, I don't think so. But you need to keep it in its proper understanding. If a prayer of salvation is being said, it's only an expression of a change that's already taken place in the heart. And so in helping that person understand salvation, show them, or uh, actually, when I, when I evangelize, often the way I kind of end my presentation is, do you repent and believe? Because it's something that should have already taken place in the conversation, if they really do. Or maybe they're, 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 there's still a question or something like that. Because walking a person through a prayer afterwards, we want if we do that, it's just to let them express the results of their salvation to God rather than as a means of salvation. If we start treating it like a means, we're setting that person up for some severe problems later on, either because they're not really saved or they might begin to doubt their salvation because they wondered if their prayer was right or did they pray it the right way or um, was the prayer effective. You know, it's interesting that in New Testament times, when it came to religion, the Romans... The pagan Romans believed that you had to pray things exactly right or the gods would not hear. If you messed up the prayer at all, you had to restart the whole thing. We don't want to have that kind of understanding slip into Christianity where you say, did you pray this in your prayer? How long was your prayer? Because otherwise you're not saved. No, we want to protect people from that. Expressing you know, what they just believed or what they've just understood to God in prayer, that's a fine thing. In fact, Practically, that helps you test their understanding of salvation. Hear what they pray and say, okay, did they really get it? But we want to help people understand that whether we're using a prayer or not or whether they pray or not, that's not the thing that saves them. It's, the, it's what's going on in their heart. Yeah, very good question, Sage. So if somebody has prayed a prayer, they believe that they're saved, but their lives seem to indicate that they're not, how do you approach them? Let's save that question for next time because that's going to have a lot to do with our next topic. So, but it's a, it's a very relevant one. Uh, let me close this in prayer, and we will get on with the rest of our Sunday. Lord, we thank you for this time looking into salvation and repentance and faith specifically. Lord, it's amazing. It is such an assault on pride when you declare in your word that, no, it's just repentance and faith that saves. <laughs> no work of ours, no penance, no uh, ritual, no long prayer, none of it. It's just that change of heart, which really you yourself produced in us. We are just responding to your work. So all glory to you, God. Help us to be clear on this and help us to help those, Lord, who, who have gotten off track with understanding salvation or even in their own belief before you so that they truly are saved. God, we rejoice in your salvation, but we do want to make it known. We want to see more people saved. So we pray that you empower us to do that and uh, accept our worship and the rest of our and bless the rest of our service today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, everyone.